Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 16 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Margaret of Anjou, Chapter 2, Part 3. Queen Margaret, in the December of 1469, left her lonely castle in Verdun, and came to Tours, with Prince Edward, to meet Louis XI, her father, her brother, her sister Yolante, and fairy Count of Vadamante, who had all assembled there, to hold a council on the best means of improving the momentous crisis for the cause of Lancaster. Margaret and her father were so greatly agitated at the prospect that appeared opening for her in England, that, when they met, they embraced with floods of tears. Everyone present was moved, not even excepting the cold-hearted Louis XI, who is said to have betrayed unwanted tokens of sensibility on this occasion. He had never shown the slightest sympathy in the griefs and calamities of his unfortunate kinswoman, but, in the circumstances that excited her hopes, he could perceive a prospect of great political advantages for himself, and now he treated her with all the respect and honor that her high rank and near relationship to him demanded, and exerted all his influence to effect a personal reconciliation between the exiled queen and the author of all her misfortunes, the Earl of Warwick. So deeply rooted was the animosity which Margaret cherished against this nobleman, that at first she positively refused to see or to speak to him. Nor can we greatly wonder at the nature of her feelings, when we reflect that, to the bitterness of twenty years of personal provocation against herself, commencing with the murder of the Duke of Suffolk, had lately been added the injurious and barbarous usage of her unoffending lord, King Henry. When Warwick arrived at Tours, he was introduced into the presence of Margaret by Louis XI, who, in the character of a mediator between these deadly foes, engaged to procure the queen's pardon for the earl. In this, says the chronicler, Queen Margaret was right difficult, and showed to the king of France, in presence of the Duke of Guienne, that with honor to herself and her son, she might not, and would not, pardon the said earl, who had been the greatest cause of the downfall of King Henry, and that never of her own spirit, might she be contented with him, nay, pardon him. Queen Margaret showed that it would be greatly prejudicial to pardon the Earl of Warwick, for in England she and her son had certain parties and friends, which they might likely lose by this means, which would do them more hindrance than the Earl and his allies could do them good. Wherefore she besought the King of France to leave off speaking for the said pardon and alliance. The Earl of Warwick on this entered into a defense of his conduct, owning that it was by his means the queen was dethroned, but that, before he had done or thought of doing her any harm, 
her false counsellors had plotted his destruction, body and goods, and that no nobleman, outraged and despaired, driven to desperation, could have done otherwise. It does not appear that Warwick mentioned the execution of his father, the Earl of Salisbury, which is almost a confirmation of the statements of these historians, who deny that he was beheaded by Margaret. In this scene, Margaret seems to have demeaned herself more like an offended woman than a queen and a political leader. But the more loftily she spoke and looked, the more submissive her former adversary became. He told her, he had been the means of upsetting King Edward and unsettling his realm, and that he would, for the time to come, be as much his foe as he had formerly been his friend and maker. He besought the queen and prince, that so they would take him, and repute him, and forgive him all he had done against them, offering himself to be bounded by all manner of ways, to be their true and faithful subject for the time to come, and that he would set, for his surety, the king of France. King Louis, being then present, agreed to be surety, praying the queen Margaret, that at his request she would pardon the Earl of Warwick, showing the great love he had to the said earl, for whom he would do more than any man living. And so Queen Margaret, being likewise urged by the agents of King René, her father, after many treaties and messages, pardoned the Earl of Warwick, and so did her son also. The Earl of Oxford, who had, by the exigency of circumstances, been compelled to acknowledge the authority of the White Rose Sovereign for a while, came also with Warwick, to entreat Queen Margaret's forgiveness, and permission to renew his homage to the House of Lancaster. The Queen received his supplication in a very different spirit from that with which she accorded her forgiveness, if such it might be called, to Warwick, for she said, Your pardon is right easy to purchase, for well I know you and your friends have suffered much things for King Henry's quarrels. On the 15th of July they all proceeded to Angers, where the Countess of Warwick and her youngest daughter were presented to Queen Margaret, and a marriage between the Prince of Wales and the Lady Anne was proposed by Louis. Margaret treated the first overtures of this strange alliance with the most unqualified contempt. Edward IV's brother Clarence had espoused the Lady Isabel, Anne's elder sister, and Margaret appears to have had an intuitive feeling of the danger of the connection. Touching the manner of the marriage, pursues the spy, the queen would not in any wise consent, or yield to any request the king of France might make her. Sometimes she said, that she saw never honor nor profit, ni for her, ni for her son the prince. Another time she, alleged that she would and she should find a more profitable party, and of more advantage with the king of England, Edward the Fourth. Indeed, she showed to the king of France a letter, which she said was sent to her out of England that last week, by which was offered to her son, my lady princess. This was Elizabeth of York, then the heiress of Edward the Fourth. Queen Margaret persevered fifteen days before she would consent to the alliance with Warwick, to which, at last, by the advice of the counsellors of her father, King René, she agreed, and the marriage was promised in presence of the King of France and the Duke of Guienne, brother to Louis the Eleventh, according to the following articles. First, the Earl of Warwick swore upon the true cross at Angers, in St. Mary's Church, that without change he shall always hold the party of King Henry, and serve him, the Queen and Prince, as a true and faithful subject oath to serve his sovereign lord. 
the king of france and his brother then clothed in canvas robes in the said church of st mary swore they would help and sustain to the utmost of their power the earl of warwick in the quarrel of king henry queen margaret then swore to treat the earl as true and faithful to king henry and the prince and for his deeds past never to make him any reproach after the recovery of the kingdom of england the prince was to be regent of all the realm and the duke of clarence to have all his own lands and those of the duke of york item from that time forth the daughter of the earl of warwick shall be put and remain in the hands and the keeping of the queen margaret but the said marriage not to be perfected till the earl of warwick had been with an army over into england and recovered the realm in the most part thereof for king henry the earl of warwick affirmed at the same time that if he were once over the sea he should have more than fifty thousand fighters at his commandment but if the king of france would help him with a few folk he would pass the sea without delay louis gave a subsidy of forty six thousand crowns besides two thousand french archers according to some of the french chroniclers the prince of wales who had entered his eighteenth year and was one of the handsomest and most accomplished princes in europe was very desirous of becoming the husband of anne neville whom he had seen at paris some time before they were allied in blood for anne's great-grandmother the countess of westmoreland was joanna beaufort the daughter of john of gaunt the patriarchal stem of the royal line of lancaster anne of warwick was co-heiress to mighty possessions which rendered her a match in point of wealth not unworthy of a spouse in full possession of regal power while these negotiations were pending louise queen gave birth to a fair son at amboise afterwards charles the eighth edward prince of wales was complimented with the office of godfather to the infant dauphin the other sponsor being james of france some historians say that margaret was the godmother but there had never been any regard between her and the queen of france charlotte of savoy who being desirous of marrying her sister bona of savoy to edward the fourth had always treated the fallen queen of the lancastrian sovereign with a contempt that the high spirit of margaret could scarcely brook after the christening of the young dauphin which was solemnized with great splendor at amboise edward of lancaster plighted his nuptial troth to anne neville in presence of queen margaret the king of france king rene and his second wife jeanne de laval the earl and countess of warwick the duke and duchess of clarence and the faithful adherents of the cause of the red rose of whom margaret's exiled court was composed this romantic marriage was celebrated at the latter end of july or the beginning of august fourteen seventy and was commemorated with feasts and high rejoicings warwick departed from angers on the fourth of august leaving his countess and newly wedded princess of wales as pledges of his fidelity with queen margaret and her son they were entertained with princely hospitality by king rene till the autumn when margaret her son and his bride with the countess of warwick proceeded to france with a guard of honor for their escort they arrived in november and margaret was received with the express orders of louis the eleventh with all the honors due to a queen of france the archbishop of paris the university the parliament the officers of chatelet the provosts of the merchants all in their habits of ceremony both received her and conducted her out of the city all the streets through which she passed from the gate of st jacques to the palace of st paul 
were hung with rich tapestry, and nothing was omitted that could add to the solemnity of her reception. Matre Nicole Giles, in his history, says, The streets of Paris were gaily dressed to welcome them, and they were lodged in the palace, where they received the news of the landing of the Earl of Warwick, and that King Henry was freed and in possession of his kingdom, upon which Queen Margaret, with all her company, resolved to return to England. King René made great personal sacrifices, exhausting both money and credit, to assist his energetic daughter in her purveyances for the voyage to England, and in the month of February, 1471, all was ready for her embarkation, but the wind. The atmospherical influences were always unfavorable to Margaret, and at this momentous crisis of her fate, as on many a one previous, it might have been said, the stars in their courses fought against Cicera. Thrice did she, in defiance of all warnings from the men of Harfleur, put to sea with her armament, and as often was driven back on the coast of Normandy, not without damage to her ships. Till many of her followers protested that this strange opposition of winds and waves was caused by sorcery. Others endeavored to prevail on her to relinquish her intention of proceeding to England, as it appeared in a manner forbidden to her. But Margaret's strong mind rejected with equal contempt the superstitious motions of either magic or omens. She knew on how critical a balance hung the fortunes of her husband and her son, and although the people in all the towns through which Warwick had passed, on his triumphant march to London, had tossed the white rose from their caps, shouting, a Henry, a Henry, a Warwick, a Warwick, and celebrated the restoration of Holy Henry to the royal power with bonfires, and every token of popular rejoicing. Yet she had too sore experience of the fickle nature of popular excitement, not to feel the importance of straining every nerve to improve the present favorable juncture. She was not ignorant of the return of King Edward, and the defection of false perjured fleeting Clarence and her anxiety to reach the scene of action, was closely proportioned to the desperate nature of the closely contested game that was playing there. Up to the last moment of her compulsory sojourn on the shores of Normandy, she continued to levy forces, and to raise munitions for the aid of Warwick and the king. On the 24th of March, she once more put to sea with her fleet, and despite of all opposing influences of the elements, pursued her inauspicious voyage to England. The passage, which with a favorable wind, might have been achieved in twelve hours, was protracted sixteen tedious days and nights, which were spent by the anxious queen in a fever of agonizing impatience. On Easter Eve, her long-baffled fleet made the port of Wymouth. Margaret, with her son the Prince of Wales, and his newly espoused consort, the prior of St. John's, called the treasurer of England, Sir John Montesquieu, Sir Henry Ruse, and many others, landed April 13th. They went immediately to the Abbey of Kern, a small religious house close by, to refresh themselves after the fatigues of the voyage. It was there that Queen Margaret, with the Prince and Princess of Wales, kept their Easter festival at the very time their cause was receiving its death blow on the fatal heath of Barnet, where the weather, as will be well remembered, once more turned the fortunes of the day against the fated Rose of Lancaster. When the dreadful news of the death of Warwick and the recapture of King Henry was brought to Margaret on the following day, she fell to the ground in a deep swoon, and for a long time, 
remained in a speechless stupor of despair, as if her faculties had been overpowered by the greatness of this unexpected blow. When she revived to consciousness, it was only to bewail the evil destiny of her luckless consort. In her agony, she reviled the calamitous temper of the times in which she lived and reproached herself, says Hall, for all her painful labors, now turned to her own misery and declared, she desired rather to die than live longer in this state of infelicity, as if she foresaw the dark adversities that were yet in store for her. When the soothing caresses of her beloved son had in some manner restored her to herself, she departed with all her company to the famous sanctuary of Beaulieu Abbey, where she registered herself and all who came with her as privileged persons. Here she found the Countess of Warwick, who had embarked at Harfleur at the same time with her, but, having a swifter sailing vessel, had landed before at Portsmouth, and proceeded to Southampton, with intent to join the Queen at Wymouth. On the road, the Countess had received the mournful news of her husband's defeat and death at Barnet, and, fearing to proceed, fled across the New Forest. And so, says Fleetwood, took her to the protection of the sanctuary of an abbey called Beaulieu, which has as great privileges as that of Westminster, or of St. Martin's at London. A melancholy meeting it must have been between the despairing queen, the widow countess, and the princess of Wales, now so sorrowfully linked in fellowship of woe. As soon as the retreat of the queen was known, she was visited by the young fiery duke of Somerset, and his brother, Jasper Tudor, the king's half-brother, and many of the Lancastrian nobles, who welcomed her to England. Finding her almost drowned in sorrow, they strove to rouse her from her dejection, by telling her, they had already a good puissance in the field, and trusted, with the encouragement of her presence and that of the prince, soon to draw all the northern and western counties to the banner of the Red Rose. The elastic spirits of Margaret, were greatly revived and comforted by the cheering speeches of these ardent partisans, and she proceeded to explain to them the causes that delayed her coming to them, in time to support Warwick, and the reasons that had induced her to take sanctuary, which was for the security of the prince her son, for whose precious safety she passionately implored them to provide. She added, that it was her opinion no good would be done in the field this time, and therefore it would be best for her and the prince, with such as chose to share their fortunes, to return to France, and there to tarry till it pleased God to send her better luck. But the gallant young prince would not consent to this arrangement, and Somerset told the queen, with some warmth, that there was no occasion to waste any more words, for they were all determined, while their lives lasted, still to keep war against their enemies, Margaret, overborne by his violence, at last said, Well, be it so. She then consented to quit her asylum, and proceeded with the Lancastrian lords to Bath. It was a peculiarity in Margaret's campaigns, that she always kept the place of her destination a profound secret. Owing to this caution, and the entire devotion of the western counties to her cause, she had got a great army in the field, ready to oppose Edward the Fourth while her actual locality remained unknown to him. He then advanced to Marlborough, but as her army was not equal in strength to his own victorious forces, she retreated from Bath to Bristol, with the intention of crossing the Severn at Gloucester. 
to form a junction with Jasper Tudor's army in Wales. Could this purpose have been effected, the biographers of Margaret of Anjou might have had a far different tale to record than the events of the dismal day at Tewkesbury. But the men of Gloucester had fortified the bridge, and would not permit her to pass, neither for threats nor fair words, though she had some friends in the city, through whom she offered large bribes. But they were under the obeisance of the Duke of Gloucester, they replied, and bound to oppose her passage. Margaret then passed on to Tewkesbury. Edward had arrived within a mile of that place before she came, and was ready to do battle with her. Though she had marched seven and thirty miles that day with her army, and was greatly overcome with vexation and fatigue, she was urgent with Somerset to press on to her friends in Wales, but Somerset, with inflexible obstinacy, expressed his determination, there to tarry, and take such fortune as God should send. And so, taking his will for reason, he pitched his camp in the fair park, and there entrenched himself, sorely against the opinion, not only of the queen, but all the experienced captains of the army. Somerset and his brother led the advance guard, the Prince of Wales, under the direction of Lord Wenlock, and the military monk, the prior of St. John's, commanded the van, the Earl of Devonshire, the rearward. When the battle was thus ordered, Queen Margaret and her son, the prince, rode about the field, and from rank to rank, encouraging the soldiers with promises of large rewards, promotions, and everlasting renown, if they won the victory. The fight commenced on the 4th of May. Our limits will not permit us to enter into the details of the battle, which was lost either through the treachery of Lord Wenlock, or the inconsiderate fury of Somerset, who, finding Wenlock inactively sitting on his horse in the marketplace of Tewkesbury, with his laggard host, when his presence was most required in the field, made fiercely up to him, and calling him, Traitor! cleft his skull with his battle-axe. The men under Wenlock's banner, panic-stricken at the fate of their leader, fled. The Prince of Wales had no experience as a general, and his personal courage was unavailing to redeem the fortunes of the day. When Queen Margaret, who was an agonized spectator of the discomfiture of her troops, saw that the day was going against her, she could with difficulty be withheld from rushing into the melee. But at length, exhausted by the violence of her feelings, she was carried in a state of insensibility to her chariot, by her faithful attendants, and was thus conveyed through the gates of Tewkesbury Park, to a small religious house hard by, where her equally unfortunate daughter-in-law, Anne of Warwick, the Countess of Devonshire, and Lady Catherine Vaux, had already taken refuge. According to Fleetwood's Chronicle, she remained there till Tuesday, May 7th, three days after the battle. Other writers affirm that she was captured on the same day which saw the hopes of Lancaster crushed, with her gallant springing young Plantagenet, on the bloody field of Tewkesbury. The generally received historical tradition of the manner of the Prince of Wales' death has been contested because two contemporary chroniclers, Workworth and Fleetwood, have stated that he was slain in the field, calling on his brother-in-law Clarence for help. In the field he probably was slain, that part of the plain of Tewkesbury, which in memory of that foul and most revolting murder is still called the Bloody Field. Sir Richard Crofts, to whom the princely novice had surrendered, tempted by the proclamation, that whoever should bring Edward, called Prince, to the king, should receive one hundred pounds a year for life, 
and the prince's life be spared. Nothing mistrusting, says Hall, the king's promise brought forth his prisoner, being a goodly well-featured young gentleman of almost feminine beauty. King Edward, struck with the noble presence of the youth, after he had well considered him, demanded, how he durst so presumptuously enter his realms with banners displayed against him. To recover my father's crown and mine own inheritance was the bold but rash reply of the fetter Leonceau of Plantagenet. Edward basely struck the gallant stripling in the face with his gauntlet, which was the signal for his pitiless attendants to dispatch him with their daggers. A small unadorned slab of grey marble in the abbey church of Tewkesbury points out the spot where the last hope of Anjou's heroine and the royal line of Lancaster was consigned, without funeral pomp, to an unhonored grave among the meaner victims of his victorious foe. On the following day, Queen Margaret's retreat was made known to King Edward, as he was on his way to Worcester, and he was assured that she should be at his command. She was brought to him at Coventry, May 11th, by her old enemy, Sir William Stanley, by whom, it is said, the first news of the massacre of her beloved son was revealed to the bereaved mother, in a manner that was calculated to aggravate the bitterness of this dreadful blow. Margaret, in the first transports of maternal agony, invoked the most terrible maledictions on the head of the ruthless Edward and his posterity, which Stanley was inhuman enough to repeat to his royal master, together with all the frantic expressions she had used against him during their journey. Edward was at first so much exasperated that he thought of putting her to death, but no Plantagenet ever shed the blood of a woman, and he contented himself by forcing her to grace his triumphant progress towards the metropolis. The youthful widow of her murdered son, Anne of Warwick, who had in one little fortnight been bereaved of her father, her uncle, her young gallant husband, and the name of Princess of Wales, some say was another of the mournful attendants on this abhorrent pageant. On the 22nd of May, being the eve of the Ascension, Margaret and her unfortunate daughter-in-law entered London together, in the train of the haughty victor, and, it is said, by the romantic French biographer of Margaret, that they travelled in the same chariot. But, even if it were so, they were separated immediately on their arrival, and Margaret was incarcerated in one of the most dismal of the prison lodgings, in that gloomy fortress, where her royal husband was already immured. That husband to whom she was now so near, after long years of separation, and yet was to behold no more. The same night that Margaret of Anjou was brought as a captive to the Tower of London, she was made a widow. That night, between eleven and twelve of the o'clock, writes the chronicler in Leland, was King Henry, being prisoner in the Tower, put to death, the Duke of Gloucester and divers of his men being in the tower that night. May God give him time for repentance, whoever he was, who laid his sacrilegious hands on the Lord's anointed, as the continuator of the chroniclers of Croyland. Tradition points out an octagonal room in the Wakefield Tower as the scene of the midnight murder of Henry the Sixth. It was there that he had, for five years, eaten the bread of affliction during his lonely captivity from 1465. A few learned manuscripts and devotional books, a bird that was the companion of his solitude, his relics, and the occasional visits of one or two learned monks, who were permitted to administer to his spiritual wants, 
were all the solaces he received in his captivity. About thirty years after his death, a metrical life of Henry the Sixth was completed by a monk of Windsor, his contemporary. It opens with a beautiful Latin hymn, of which, with the assistance of a learned friend, I am enabled to offer the reader a literal translation in the original meter. Salve, miles precios. 1. Hail, Henry, soldier of the Lord, in whom all precious gifts accord, branch of the heavenly vine, rooted in charity and love, serenely blooming as above, the saint's angelic shine. 2. Hail, flower of true nobility, honor and praise and dignity adorn thy diadem meek father of the fatherless thy people succor in distress the church's strength and gem three hail pious king in thee we see the graces of humility with spotless goodness crowned by sorrow stricken and oppressed to those who vainly sigh for rest mirror of patience found four hail beacon of celestial light whose beams may guide our steps aright, thy blessed course to trace. In virtue's past forever seen, mild and ineffably serene, radiant with every grace. 5. Hail, whom the king of endless time hath called to angel choir sublime, in realms forever blessed. May we, who now admiring raise these unworthy notes of praise, share thy glorious rest. King Edward and the Duke of Gloucester, as if apprehensive of some outburst of popular indignation, left London early in the same morning that the tragic pageant, of exposing the corpse of their royal victim to public view, was to take place, an exhibition that was a matter of political expediency, to prevent any further attempts for his deliverance. The day after the ascension, the last Lancastrian king was born barefaced on the bier, surrounded by more glaives and bills than torches through cheapside to st paul's that every man might see him and there the silent witness of the blood that welled from his fresh wounds upon the pavement gave an indubitable token of the manner of his death the same awful circumstance occurred when they brought him to blackfriars and this is recorded by four contemporary authorities in quaint but powerful language very brief was the interval between the death and funeral of holy henry in the evening his bloody hearse was placed in a lighted barge guarded by soldiers from calais and so without singing or saying says the chronicler conveyed up the dark waters of the thames at midnight to his silent interment at chertsey abbey where it was long pretended that miracles were performed at his tomb whether the widow margaret was from her doleful lodgings in the tower, a spectator of the removal of the remains of her hapless lord is not recorded. But her extreme anxiety to possess them may be gathered from a curious document among the manuscripts in the royal archives at Paris. Just before the melancholy period of her last utter desolation, death had been busy in the paternal house of Margaret of Anjou, her brother John of Calabria, his young promising heir, and her sister's husband, Fairy of Vadamonte, and her natural sister, Blanche of Anjou, all died within a few weeks of each other. King René had not recovered from the stupor of despair in which he had been plunged by these repeated bereavements, when he received the intelligence of the direful calamities that had befallen his unhappy daughter, and for her sufferings 
he shed those tears which he had been unable to weep for his own. Under the influence of these feelings, he wrote the following touching letter to Margaret, which she received in the midst of her agonies for the death of her husband and son. My child, may God help thee with his counsels, for rarely is the aid of man tendered in such reverse of fortune. When you can spare a thought from your own sufferings, think of mine. They are great, my daughter, yet would I console thee. The imprisonment of Queen Margaret was at first very rigorous, but it was, after a time, ameliorated through the compassionate influence of Edward's queen, Elizabeth Woodville, who probably retained a grateful remembrance of the benefits she had formerly received from her royal mistress. Margaret was first removed to Windsor, and afterwards to Wallingford, where she seems to have been under the charge of the noble castellane, Alice Chaucer, Duchess Dowager of Suffolk, her old favorite. At least such, we think, is the inference to be drawn from this observation in one of the Paston letters, dated July 8, 1471. And as for Queen Margaret, I understand that she is removed from Windsor to Wallingford, nigh to Ulam, to Lady Suffolk's place in Oxfordshire. Five marks a week were allotted by Edward the Fourth for the maintenance of the unfortunate Margaret during her imprisonment in Wallingford Castle. Her tender-hearted father, King René, was unwearied in his exertions for her emancipation, which was at length accomplished at the sacrifice of his inheritance of Provence, which he ceded to Louis XI at Lyon in 1475 for half its value, that he might deliver his beloved child from captivity. Yolante and her son murmured a little at this loss, but they appeared, nevertheless, fond of Margaret. The agreement between Edward IV and Louis XI for the ransom of Margaret of Anjou was finally settled, August 29, 1475, while Edward was in France. Louis undertook to pay 50,000 crowns for her liberation at five installments. The first installment of her ransom was paid to Edward's treasurer, Lord John Howard, November 3rd, the same year, and the bereaved and broken-hearted widow of the Holy Henry, after five years' captivity, was conducted from her prison at Wallingford Castle to Sandwich. In her journey through Kent, she was consigned to the care and hospitality of John Hout, a squire of that county, strongly in the interests of the House of York, who attended her to Sandwich, where she embarked. Her retinue, when she landed in France, according to Prevost, consisted of three ladies and seven gentlemen, but these must have been sent by the King of France, since the miserable sum allotted to Hout for her traveling expenses allows for little attendance. The feelings may be imagined with which she took a last farewell of the English shores, where, thirty years before, she had landed in the pride and flush of youthful beauty as its monarch's bride, and all the chivalry of the land thronged to meet and do her honor. Now it was treason even to shed a tear of pity for her sore afflictions, or to speak a word of comfort to her. Truly might she have said, See if any sorrow be like unto my sorrow. She safely arrived at Dieppe in the beginning of January 1476. It was requisite for the validity of the deeds of renunciation she had to sign that she should be at liberty. Therefore, Sir Thomas Montgomery took her to Rouen, and on the 22nd resigned her to the French ambassadors. And on the 29th of January, she signed a formal renunciation of all her rights, 
her marriage in England had given her. There is something touching in the very simplicity of the Latin sentence with which the deeds begin, that was wrung from the broken-hearted heroine, who had, through so many storms of adversity, defended the rights of her royal consort and son. While they remained in life, she would have died a thousand deaths, rather than relinquish even the most shadowy of their claims. But the dear ones were no more, and now... Ambition, pride, the rival names of York and Lancaster, with all their long-contested claims, what were they then to her? Passively, and almost as a matter of indifference, Margaret subscribed the instrument commencing, Ego Margarita, Olim in Regno Anglia Marietata, etc. I, Margaret, formerly in England married, renounce all that I could pretend to in England, by the conditions of my marriage, with all other things there, to Edward, now King of England. This deed did not afford her the title of Queen, even in a retrospective view. She was simply Margaret, formerly married in England. At the same time, she signed a renunciation of her reversionary rights on her father's territories to Louis XI, but as there were several intermediate heirs, this was no great sacrifice. Margaret intended to take Paris in her journey home in order to thank Louis XI for her liberation, but it did not suit that wily politician to receive her, and he sent a message advising her to make the best of her way to her father. The last spark of Margaret's high spirit was elicited at this discourtesy, and, declining the escort Louis XI had prepared for her at Rouen, she set out on her long wintry journey through Normandy, a resolution which had nearly occasioned the loss of her life. After Normandy had been conquered by Henry V, he had planted some colonies of English settlers in various towns and villages, and one or two of these settlements still remained in a wretched state, being unable to emigrate to their mother country. Margaret, wholly unconscious of these circumstances, meant to rest for the night, after her first day's journey from Rouen, in a town containing many of these malcontents. Curiosity led a crowd of them to gaze upon her at the inn, but when the word passed among them, that it was Margaret of Anjou returning from England to her father, murmurs arose. They declared, that she had been the original cause of the English losing France, and consequently of all their misery, and that they would now take vengeance upon her. With these words, they made a rush to seize her, but fortunately she had time to gain her apartment, while two English gentlemen, her attendants, held her assailants at bay with their drawn swords, till the French authorities of the town, hearing the uproar, interfered and rescued the unhappy Margaret from this unexpected attack. She retraced her steps immediately to Rowan, and was glad to claim the protection she had before refused. We now come to that era of Margaret's life, in which a noble author of our times, Lord Morpeth, in one exquisite line, describes her as, Anjou's lone matron in her father's hall. Like Naomi, Margaret returned empty and desolate to her native land, but, not like her, attended by a fond and faithful daughter-in-law, for the unhappy widow of her son had been compelled to wed King Edward's brother, Richard of Gloucester, with whom public report had branded as the murderer of Henry the Sixth, and the idea of this alliance must have added a drop to the already overflowing cup of bitterness, of which the fallen queen had drunk so deeply. 
The home to which her father welcomed Margaret was at that time at Reculay, about a league from Angers, on the river Mayence, where he had a castle that commanded a view of the town, with a beautiful garden, and a gallery of paintings and sculpture, which he took delight in adorning with his own paintings, and ornamented the walls of his garden with heraldic designs carved in marble. It was in such pursuits as these that René, like a true Provençal sovereign, sought forgetfulness of his afflictions. But Margaret's temperament was of too stormy a nature to admit the slightest alleviation to her grief. Her whole time was spent in painfully retracing the direful scenes of her past life, and in passionate regrets for the bereavements she had undergone. The canker worm that was perpetually busy within, at length made its ravages outwardly visible on her person, and effected a fearful change in her appearance. The agonies and agitations she had undergone turned the whole mass of her blood. Her eyes, once so brilliant and expressive, became hollow, dim, and perpetually inflamed, from excessive weeping, and her skin was disfigured with a dry scaly leprosy, which transformed this princess, who had been celebrated as the most beautiful in the world, into a spectacle of horror. Villeneuve says, Margaret seldom left her retreat at Reculet, with the exception of one or two visits to the court of Louis XI. Another modern French historian mentions her, as the person who kept alive the interests of the Lancastrian party, for her kinsman, the young Earl of Richmond, of whom Henry the Sixth had prophesied, that he should one day wear the crown of England. But the generally received opinion is, that she, after her return to her own country, lived in the deepest seclusion. A Burgundian poet of her own times, George Castellane, wrote a poem called the Temple of Ruined Greatness, in which Margaret of Anjou is greatly celebrated. A little before his death, King René composed two beautiful canticles on the heroic action of his beloved daughter, Queen Margaret. This accomplished prince died in the year 1480. By his will, which is preserved among the manuscripts in the Bibliothèque du Roy, René bequeathed 1,000 crowns in gold to his daughter Margaret, Queen of England, and, if she remains in a state of widowhood, an annuity of 2,000 livres, and the Chateau of Canis for her abode. He wrote a letter on his deathbed to Louis XI, earnestly recommending to his care his daughter Margaret and his widow. After the death of King René, Margaret sold any reversionary rights which the death of her elder sister and her children might give her to the duchies of Lorraine, Anjou, Maine, Provence, and Bar, to Louis XI, for a pension of 6,000 livres. She executed this deed on the 19th day of November, 1480, in the great hall of the castle of Reculet, where in her girlhood she had received the ambassadors of England, who came to solicit her virgin hand for their sovereign. This pension was so unpunctually paid by Louis, that if Margaret had no other resource, she would have been greatly inconvenienced, especially as many of the ruined Lancastrian exiles subsisted on her bounty. King René, with his last breath, had consigned her to the care of an old and faithful officer of his household, Francis Benoles, Lord of Morens, who had shared all his struggles. This brave soldier took the fallen queen to his own home, the Chateau of Dampierre, near Samour, 
the last tie that bound margaret to the world was severed by the death of her father and she wished to end her days in profound retirement her efforts to obtain the bodies of her murdered husband and son were ineffectual but till the last day of her life she employed some faithful ecclesiastics in england to perform at the humble graves of her loved and lost ones the offices deemed needful for the repose of their souls on her deathbed she divided among her faithful attendants the few valuables that remained from the wreck of her fortunes and worn out with the pressure of her sore afflictions of mind and body she closed her troublous pilgrimage at the chateau of Dampierre august twenty fifth in the fifty-first year of her age she was buried in the cathedral of angers in the same tomb with her royal parents without epitaph or inscription or any other memorial excepting her portrait painted on glass in a window of the cathedral a tribute of respect was for centuries paid to her memory by the chapter of saint maurice who annually on the feast of all saints after the vespers for the dead made a semicircular procession round her grave, singing a subvenite. This was continued till the French Revolution. Margaret's elder sister, Yolante, survived her two years. She had a beautiful daughter, called Margaret of Anjou the Younger. Maria Louisa, Napoleon's empress, possessed the breviary of this princess, in which there is one sentence, supposed to have been written by the once beautiful, powerful and admired margaret queen of england her aunt venite de vanities toute la vanity end of section 16「Thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.